Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How are you doing? Uh, great. Oh. Wait. No? No, I I just, I never, uh, that never happens. So. Oh, yeah, things are going great. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear it. Oh, okay. I got a, I got a, well, I got a, I got a new job. Wait, what? It starts at the end of the month. Really? Yeah, I told you this. Well, I remember you telling me you were interviewing for the oh, job. yeah, I got a job. All right. So, yeah, it's a Woo! cool job uh, at a movie studio. Nice. Uh, it's all happening, David. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's so, yeah, just... I'm in, a, I'm in a great mood. I'll be in a great mood for all of January until the job starts. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah, yeah that happens. Um, all right. So uh, the, we're, we're going to be recording two episodes today. Um, so we're going to try January and keep January 4th, them... 2011. Today's the... Yeah, today's the 4th. That's all, right. All day long. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. I listened back to last episode, and I was very... And I was very cranky. I was very, very, I think, prickly. I didn't, More... I didn't feel that way. Oh, I did. Um, and, uh, and I'm really trying to be positive. I'm trying to be uh, just, a, just a good guy this episode, and already I just want to kill you. Like, I just... I hate you so much. But anyway, uh, so we're doing you're, these... You're like, I got a tweet today asking for more West Wing talk. So you're kind of like Toby. Yeah, okay. When, I can uh, see that. But when the... Um, uh, I think it's when the Mendoza nomination goes through and he comes to work really happy for the first time. He's saying yeah. hi to everyone. Yeah. You know? And uh, and uh, and he says... Uh, Mandy's waiting in his office and he says, there's nothing you could do to ruin my mood today. And she says, we need to ask China for a new panda bear. And he goes... Yeah, that did it. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody so actually th- said more West Wing talk? Yeah. Because this guy is, uh, I can't remember his name on Twitter now. I feel bad. Um, How's about this? But he's he's rewatching. He's he's in the middle of watching it with his wife. Okay. So, Let me, uh, he really, okay. Well, do you remember the name of the? Nope. Oh, okay. Um, because my friend Sean, Real World Fit, is watching it with his wife. Okay, I know who real world, uh, at real world fit is. Okay. Um let's talk more about our Twitter friends. All right. People that we know. I just got three more. Anyway, uh <laughs> so let me okay, let me throw this at you. If people want more West Wing talk, how about this? You will watch seasons 5, 6 and 7 and then we'll devote an entire <sighs> BP supplement to discussing it. Discussing the difference between Yeah. How about this? Everything. Everything West Wing. This supplement will be four hours long, <laughs> and then we will get it out of our system. I like the West Wing. Um, I don't know. We'll talk about that later. Indeed. All right. Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're doing two episodes, so we do want to try and keep this a little shorter. Probably not going to happen already, but still. Uh, so the top of the show, we want to just uh, jump right into it. Uh, an actor that I'm a big fan of uh, has passed away. Uh, it is Pete Postlethwaite. Yeah. He had a big year, too. Uh, I only know of one uh, movie that he played a prominent role in. There's two, The Inception and The Town. That's right. That's right. I, I forget that he's in, in Inception. He's not. He doesn't play a huge role, but it is a crucial role. Someone pointed out to me, because when I went to see Inception, I saw the trailer for The Town, mm-hmm. and someone pointed out to me that Pete Postlethwaite has more lines in the trailer for The Town than he has <laughs> in Inception. But I tell you... Because he only says like two things in, the, in Inception. Yeah, but he... He is he he has such a strong screen presence. I think he doesn't need a lot of lines. His yeah. presence is felt in that film, and you certainly feel it in 
uh, Killian Murphy's performance, mm-hmm. um, and so I really liked uh, him in that. And then, did you you didn't see the town? I didn't right? see the town. No, uh, movie's okay, and his perform his character. There's not he's not in a lot of it. I think he's only in maybe two or three scenes, but he's very good in it. And uh, and I think what I what I liked about him as an actor is that he. I do not say this lightly, David. There's a lot of stuff about him as an actor that I like in Robert De Niro. Uh, I'm sorry, Robert Duvall, in that right. he, for example, in the town he plays uh, like a crime lord, and as is kind of a common thing, he works like out of a flower shop. That's sort of his front company. Sure. Okay. Uh, stuff like that happens. Just he seems very fatherly and very genial and stuff like that, but he's really quite ruthless, and that's kind of common, but. Uh, his performance, he really does seem very almost fatherly to Ben Affleck's character, and it doesn't necessarily f- seem forced. He actually does seem like he cares deeply about this guy, but that he does care a little bit more about profit. And a character that could have seemed really monstrous uh, is not, and actually, which makes the moments when he is monstrous so much, so much more like ugh, it makes your skin crawl. Um, but then characters like his his character in um, the Usual Suspects, sure. who he he is not the primary villain, but he's basic he's the face and the voice of the primary right. villain, and he could have played him as a guy who just really enjoys being so powerful and so evil and and all that. But instead, he plays him as just very nice and very uh, business oriented. Kind of like an, he's like an attorney. Yeah, very much. He is a, his character is a yeah. lawyer, right? Yeah. And so and that's how he plays him like he's yeah. the bad guy's lawyer, not a henchman. Exactly. Yeah. But he also is aware that the people that he's going to be dealing with, he could get killed. Mm-hmm. But he knows that because of who he works for, he can always wield something. There's a moment when Stephen Baldwin has a gun pointed at his head and they are planning on killing him. And with just the power of his words, which he does not necessarily overplay to be like i'm gonna kill all your family he just said he just says very matter of fact very straightforward he mentions the various members of uh all of their families mm-hmm. and he says ah oh, but never uh, never mind kill away mr mcmanus and he just says it in a, just a very what i like is that he just never approaches the character in an incredibly obvious way and uh, and i liked him a lot it was it was a shame because he, he he died fairly young 64 and uh, and it was of cancer. I didn't know that he had cancer, but it, apparently it was for like uh, years. I think at this point, maybe maybe two or three years. But um, but yeah. So it it really it really uh, saddened me because he's. I don't, does this does this ever happen for you that there are some actors that you know they're getting older or you know that they're sick and you're like ah, it's just a matter of time. But then there are some actors that you just sort of take for granted, and sure, then when they're go- and then yeah. when they're gone, you're like, that is a shame. That yeah. really, because he was, he was always great, and uh, and now, I mean, he he's got a, a huge body of work. I I still have never seen uh, Brassed Off, which I hear is actually very good, and his performance is very good in it. So I don't think I saw that. So thankfully, I can go back and revisit some of his uh, some of his performances. But uh, I remember my friend Scott always used to make a, a big deal, and it is a big deal that in William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, uh-huh. uh, directed by Baz Luhrmann, uh, Pete Postlethwaite as Friar Lawrence uh, is the only actor in the film to actually speak in iambic 
pentameter. Oh. And okay. so, uh, I don't know, I just, I, I, I always really respected him as an actor, and he will be missed. And I, not only will he be missed as an actor, but we will all miss the opportunity to say Pete Postlethwaite. Oh, it's it's delightful. My uh, my mom, um, on uh, Facebook, she saw that I was on Facebook at the same time she was, so she sent me like an instant message and said, like, hey, who is this uh, Peter Post, and then like, dot, 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 I don't remember his name, and I said like i don't i don't know who oh i got it okay yeah. but uh yeah it's a delightful name pete postlethwaite uh and he he was in alien 3 and completely wasted like he didn't even he was one of the inmates and he gets killed by the alien and he didn't even have like uh spoilers uh <laughs> but he didn't no even, one has a chance to shine in alien 3 except for sigourney weaver it's not a very good movie it's not a very good movie, but there are Charles S. Dutton has some nice moments. Charles, I'm sure he does his best. <laughs> Charles Dance, I think, actually is given an, an interesting character to play and, and plays him very well. But they're all being smothered by the production design. Yeah, and also we we've never we've never done an episode about production design, but I would like to uh-huh. because the difference between the production design in Alien and Aliens and and Alien Three is that. It's just so ugly, and it's just so it. It's not, and it's not ugly in a way that's like, look how fascinating this is. It's just like, yeah, we uh, basically work in a car engine. What do you think of that? <laughs> it's just like, oh, this isn't pleasant at all. Which I guess is the idea, right? So okay, trying to figure out how to get into it here. Uh, Alien Three. No, I, I got it. I don't have it. Okay. So here's the thing. You and I were. Uh, I oh, I had the perfect way in. I okay. blew it. Oh. Okay. Here, we'll, uh, we'll take it over again. We're not going to edit this. Okay. <laughs> Pete Postlethwaite, we're going to miss him. So, and you mentioned that your mom uh, mentioned this on Facebook. Um, Indeed, yes. Speaking of Facebook, I just saw, finally, saw the Facebook movie. Facebook I'm, the movie, directed by David Fincher. Indeed. Um, and, of course, I really liked it. No surprises there. How right? about this? We were just talking about Alien 3. No, but I'm getting... I'm getting oh, okay, got it, yeah. You and I were having a conversation about the social network. I'm sorry, I mean Facebook the movie. Indeed. And um, and I was I was talking about how I was... I was struck with a question while watching it. Yes. Because it's a very, very well-made film. Yeah. But my my favorite, absolute favorite part of the social network is... The regatta sequence, okay. which has nothing to do with the story. Yeah, it's just a little standalone film. And I that is the rowing sequence is, is yeah. what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I found myself wondering. Here's the question I posed to myself. Okay. And I'm sure everyone's answer is different, but the question is: Is film and filmmaking is it a storytelling art form that uses visual and oral techniques, or is it a visual and oral abstract art form that can be used to tell stories and i'm sure and there's no right answer people everyone has their but i was wondering what is this what is it to me because mm-hmm. this this sort of thing like with um you know like the social network uh happens happens a lot where i find i like i like narrative films i like films that have a narrative yeah. and say something they use their story and their characters to say something about humanity mm-hmm. but often my favorite parts of the films 
are the parts that are divorced from the story. We right. were just talking about the fighter, which I also saw. Yeah. The fight sequences are the best part. They're these little films. For me, they're the, they're the best part. Right, yeah. Um, or even like the training sequence where he scores it to... Um, David Russell uses a... Because it, it takes place in 1993. He yeah. uses a, a Breeders song. I think it's called <laughs> Saints. Um, I know it is the Summer is Ready When You Are song because that's the chorus. Okay. Uh, and it's just like, oh, this is a really cool little like music video for this Breeders song. Yeah. And those are my favorite parts of the film, but I still want them to take place within a narrative film. Okay. So it's hard for me to say which of those two things is correct. So what we're going to... We're going to tackle here is mm-hmm. talk about uh i guess sort of craftsmanship yeah. versus experimentalism and i already have a problem with that because i don't think versus is the right but craftsmanship and experimentalism yes within narrative film uh i guess we'll, we'll talk about the ways that they're important on their own the ways mm-hmm. that they work together yeah the ways that one of us might prefer one to the other. What were your thoughts after after our social network discussion about this question? Well, it got me it got me thinking because uh, social network as of right now is my third favorite movie of the year, um, and I believe you said it was your fifth or sixth. Fifth. Okay, fifth. And uh, it's it's very interesting because as we all know, and as as you and I have discussed, there are different things that I tend to value and different things that you tend to value we still we don't devalue these other things like i tend to like acting and writing and character and stuff like that you tend to like cinematography editing um and so by all right um the social network should be one of should be my favorite movie of the year no of course it's in my top three so there's nothing wrong with that but uh because from uh not only story structure, but yeah. just character storytelling, using film to tell the story and dialogue. Of and course, dialogue. It's flawless. Yeah, it's really. I mean, there. I do have some issues with with perhaps oversimplified motivation, uh, character motivation. But um, but as far yeah, it's it's a really. I would. I the word I often use is solid. It is a solid film. I would venture to say a great film. But I don't know. I remember you and I when talking about it, we both kind of. For lack of a better term, we hemmed and hawed about how great the film was. And I've noticed that I, because, and then you put the question to me of, is film this or is it, or is it this? And it got, it it made me think, especially in view of my favorite movie of the year, which I I will not reveal because it might change, it might not, I'm not sure. But uh, as, as I've gotten older... I feel like I have sort of, not totally, of course. I mean, my favorite movie last year was The Messenger, which I'm not sure if that's true anymore, by the way. Um, and then the year before was The Visitor. Uh, I have sort of moved away from the idea. The year before that was The Aviator. Uh, no, the year before that was The Ratatouille, as we all know. <laughs> I was looking for something that ended in R. Oh. I, well, I'm not going to. Anyway. The uh, Fighter will be your favorite film this year. Oh, there's no question about it. Shoot. I'm so one note. Anyway, <laughs> but I find myself being less, not less satisfied with movies like The Social Network and The Fighter, as you mentioned. I, I love them. I really enjoy them. But I find myself more and more invigorated and intrigued and just fascinated by movies that are um, in which the, the filmmaker 
is kind of audacious, uh-huh. and that could come in in any in any way. It could mean a certain type of visual style, a certain type of editing style, a certain type of storytelling style. In in any case, it it usually comes when a filmmaker decides to kind of buck convention. Mm-hmm. And I realize that I, I don't know. It, it's it's more. It's almost more interesting to me at this point. Um, and uh, and so I feel like... Uh, because when you ask me the, the question of, is film more... Uh, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can, quite re- if I can recall how you, how you phrased okay. it even just now. Is film more inherently dramatic and it uses cinematography and editing to enhance that or to help that along? Or is it more about the visual and editing style and and it takes the form and of the drama sound. and the sound yes i, I mentioned this specifically so. because we're talking about the social network and uh trent Reznor's score is yes awesome yes it's one of the best things about that movie um so is it is it about the sound editing and cinematography or just visual style in general um and dramatic structure kind of is a way to bring all those things together. And uh, I instinctively said that I I thought it was maybe more dramatic with these other things to help it along. But it got me thinking... This explanation is going to be a little long. I I apologize. That's okay. There has been a a debate going on for a while about whether or not video games are art. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily dip my toe into that. But yeah, I don't play video games. I still have my Super Nintendo, and uh, I enjoy it. That said, they're absolutely art. Get over yourselves. And I think, and <laughs> my my, I know you didn't want to like get yeah, into thanks. the argument, but no. Well, and my it's clear, they're art. The thing that the thing that gets me is what makes a f- what makes a th- a new thing art is if the thing that is new about it still fits the idea of what art is, which is a specific artist or team of artists view of the world and then putting out uh, right. an idea or something like that. Right. And so, of course, the different thing about video games is interactivity. Somebody, uh, the, the audience getting a choice in what's going to happen. Um, I feel like that's... Yeah, but only to a point. There's still a story with these video games, uh, from my understanding. But in that, And so they are art, but the story doesn't make them new art any more than the dramatic aspect of a film. That doesn't make it any different than theater. What makes it different is the fact that the camera is moving and you can edit all these images together. Right. So, so what makes a video game new then? I think the interactivity. Okay, I see. Um, and so that's, that's neither here nor there. So I, so I think because, uh, because I, I feel like... Because I define art that way, that it's this new... If it's a new art form, then whatever is new has to fit what what our definition of art is. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to editing and cinematography and sound, it absolutely does that. And so I'm starting to actually lean, I think, more towards your opinion, which is that dra- drama and narrative are just the handiest delivery device for these things. But the this is what film is really is really about is... The way it's cut together, the way it looks, the way it sounds, mm-hmm. the 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 moods and the and the atmosphere that is evoked by the filmmaker, and so uh, so I think that's why because you and I have talked in the past that there are some movies that I feel like 
the filmmaker, whether it be uh, bucking a narrative convention or just utilizing these other things in a different way. But there are films in which I, I love them because it feels like the director has this thing that he wants to get across mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how and he knows that if he does it the way he he feels he needs to do it it's not going to be considered perfect it's not in fact some people are really going to hate it people are going to call it flawed and in many ways maybe it isn't perfect dramatically or from a narrative standpoint but maybe that's not what film is about maybe he's trying to be perfect or at least to achieve something in these other areas and so that that was kind of what I was thinking about in terms of this topic is uh, is and I made a list of films that I think do it very well, mm-hmm. um, whether and maybe films that aren't that satisfying from a narrative standpoint. But anyway, so uh, I've been talking for a while. Well, I, 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 I want to reiterate that I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying one of these is right. Right. And I want to make, make it clear that there are there are plenty of films um that don't really deviate from the conventions they just work at mm-hmm. sort of the top of of the of the possibility within the conventions right i'm sure i could think of an example if i wanted to but um uh i don't know the verdict might be one yeah all right doesn't really you know there's nothing yeah astounding uh, uh astoundingly innovative about it yeah i mean it's about as standard as you can get but within that it's incredibly great and incredibly satisfying it's well photographed edited acted written yeah directed all that stuff it's everything that story needs to be yeah casablanca is a that's the one i should have there it is that's the perfect example yeah um although even that like that heavy use of flashback was maybe a little, if I remember my film school correctly, was a little uncommon at the time. Yeah. You know, it's like a 10-minute flashback sequence. I think there's like a flashback within a flashback. It's, I don't recall if there's one within <laughs> the flashback. But yes, it's a, it, it certainly is an extended flashback. No, don't you remember, sequence. it's a flashback within the flashback, but then there's the kick back in the real world. And they all, they all wake up. <laughs> Stay tuned to our next episode, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, are there any, now in discussing this, I... What are you laughing at? So I'm just imagining like the plane leaving the airport forever because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's all these different flashbacks going on at Casab- in Casablanca. Oh my! This is funny to, to me only. It is funny to you only, but that's <laughs> that's fine. Uh, so in discussing this, I basically made a, as I said, made a list of movies. Uh, how would your, how would you like to actually pursue this discussion? Uh, I, well, I, I guess I want to break it down into. Um, Let's start by talking about movies maybe where, uh, you know, like a Mulholland Drive was one you mentioned, where yep. the narrative, in as much as it exists, is incidental to yeah. the, uh, whatever, the abstract yeah. uh, experimental nature of yeah. it. Uh, so what do you do? Yeah, Mulholland Drive is a great, a great place to start. Okay. Um, because... I mean, David Lynch still uses characters and dialogue. Just because you have mm. characters and dialogue doesn't mean you're necessarily telling a story. Right. And, I mean, you could refer to Mulholland Drive as a nonlinear story, but it's not really a complete story. Yeah. It stops being a story about halfway through and then just becomes a dream. Yeah. Uh, and kind of stays that way. Yeah. But it still, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have, like, 
concrete things to say. You know, there, there's, you know, there, there are experimental films. I watched, uh, plenty of them in film school that may be like, uh, sort of deconstructing the, the, the nature of a narrative film. Yeah. Or are saying some, like whatever their point or their theme is of this experimental film. Yeah. Uh, it's either completely ethereal or completely, uh, esoteric whereas david lynch while he's doing non-narrative things is still he's still making uh specific points that have to do with humanity and that could be put into words yeah um excuse me about uh about uh i mean what would you say mulholland drive is about about attraction and lust and memory uh and i would also and, and identity Certainly, sure, yeah. Because uh, Natalie Watts, uh, what's her name? I'm sorry, Naomi Watts. I'm sorry, I was thinking of uh, something else. Obviously, you were thinking um, about my girlfriend. Yeah, that's exactly. Knock it off. I thought she was. Was she not in Mulholland Drive? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Naomi Watts. Uh, she she changes characters. I I believe her character even changes names. I mean, she's just a yeah. completely different person. Is two and perfor- she has different teeth. Yeah. Two performances, completely... Two, two sets of teeth. Two set, uh, Yes, two sets of teeth. But it is actually very yeah. important because... Yeah. In the, um, in the first reality... Yeah. She's this... She's like, perfect, ready-made for the screen. You yeah. Know? In the second one, she's probably still a very good actress and largely very pretty, but she has these teeth that are... She has imperfect teeth. Well, and also... And this... You know what? This might be a little. Every once in a while, it doesn't happen very much, but uh, certainly not uh, with the group of friends that I run with now. But when I was younger, I used to say, "Hey, you know, what about this?" And my friends would be like, "I think you're reaching a little bit." <laughs> but with Mulholland Drive, the good thing about that movie is there is no such thing as reaching too much. Right. Um, also, there's just the identity is often associated. It's a, our identity is associated with fingerprints, footprints, and teeth. Oh right. Okay. The idea, for example, if somebody is burned to death, burned, yeah. The way you identify who they are is by their dental records, Mm -hmm. and so there's that. But also, just there are certain actors that we know what their teeth are like. (laughs) David Letterman. He's not an actor, but he's a performer. We know that he's got Clint Howard. Clint Howard. Steve Buscemi. Um, I mean, there's there's others. It's usually when the teeth are like particularly odd or Bell, something. Bella Lugosi. <laughs> nice. Um, you got any more? Uh, guy who played Jaws, Richard uh, Keel. Keel. All right. Um, so so I think you should have stopped me after Bella Lugosi. It's fine. Well, for a moment, <laughs> I'm like uh, Jaws was a mechanical shark, <laughs> uh, David. So no, I was talking about the James Bond film that I've never actually seen. There, he's, Jaws actually shows up in two films. How about that? He shows up in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Moonraker, one of the worst of the Jaws of the, uh, of of the, the Jaws, Jaws films. films. Yes. <laughs> Jaws 5, Moonraker. Moon- <laughs> <laughs> Jaws in space. <laughs> Oddly enough, Michael Caine is back. <laughs> um, and this time it's personal. So, uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, but, yeah, so I think I think the film is I would, in in my in my view, almost first and foremost about identity, um, and which, 
kind of leads me into uh, the, the the next film on my list, which is um, Persona, which I actually only recently saw. Uh-huh. And have you seen Persona? Not all of it, actually. Okay. It's, uh, you know, a lot of these films, including Mulholland Drive, as, as, as you know, uh, bothered me when I first saw them because na- film for me was narrative first, characters first, and all that. Well, I mean, what... And as someone you, who, you know, has done a lot of acting, both yeah. in high school and in community theater and stuff, you come yeah. from a theater point of view. Very much so. And <laughs> Not that theater can't be experimental. That's true, yes. This insane Spider-Man thing, for example, <laughs> uh, that we're all reading about with uh, big grins on our faces. I'm not. I'm not grinning about it, because someone's going to get killed, and there it's going to be that. in service of the Spider-Man musical. <laughs> I know. People got wounded uh, during... Uh, uh, Orson Welles' uh, lavish, uh, lavish uh, production of uh, Five Kings, in which he m- took various Shakespeare plays and uh, edited them all into one insane play that was like five hours long. Uh-huh. And, I mean, there were all kinds of terrible set mishaps and p- during the actual productions, uh, but the audiences uh, always applauded at the end, more so than they normally would, almost as a function of like, congratulations, actors, you got through it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, at least they got wounded in service of something Orson Welles was doing. And, right. Well, and that's Julie Taymor, Julie Taymor is, is a respectable kook. But very much so, but it's Spider-Man. Yeah. Please. So, anyway, that said, I really want to see it. <laughs> uh, if it ever comes here, or if there's ever another performance of it ever again, I'd like to see it. So, uh... What, what the hell called? was I saying? Hmm? Turn on the night. Something like that. I think it's turn off the dark. Okay. <laughs> turn on the night. <laughs> Sounds like a, I, I think that's a Bob Seger album. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, but how did we get there? I don't know. You, you mentioned the Spider-Man thing. <laughs> but you're Shoot. talking about Persona. Persona. Oh, yeah. So, oh, that's right, because uh, you, you talked about experimental theater and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, almost all the movies on my on my list... When I first saw them, if if I had seen them, you know, three or more years ago, my first thing was like, "Come on, you you bastards!" But when you're dealing with an what is essentially an experimental film about identity and what that re- really means, and you're somebody who really latches on to character, you're not going to be very satisfied. Right. Uh, but uh, in Persona, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on, and my my first instinct was not to really. Not not to like there was nothing for me to latch on to because it was just I mean, you were kind of given the situation of these two characters, but you didn't really in some cases you didn't really care about them because it kind of just threw you in to the situation. It didn't introduce anything. Uh and only only when one of the characters gives a very detailed uh account of like this this sexual experience that she had with uh with these two guys and all that um only then you're like oh finally something personal that this person is sharing but then it just continues to go uh deeper and and i remember my friend uh josh long put put this uh put out this idea that uh persona is about the idea of why am i me and not you (laughs) and uh and I like that. Now my my uh, my instinctive answer is just like because I am. Shut up. <laughs> uh, but that's 
but that's that's a legitimate question. It's a very odd question that is not easy to answer. Mm-hmm. David, why am I me and not you? Uh, some people are just luckier than others. Hey, all right. I, I think I win, right? Is that what you're saying? It could go either way. Oh, fair enough. But uh, and that that's the thing is when you're just when you're when you're exploring a a topic like that, how can you how could you even try and do it in a in a narrative way? Right. Um, I mean, I guess talented Mr. Ripley does a little bit, but even so, there's no question this man is Tom Ripley throughout, and he may be wishing he was other people. He may be adopting the the names and and you know nuances of other people but there he is still him throughout um but yeah so yeah you could i mean Mulholland drive definitely does a good job of exploring this idea of the difference between what the self is and what the body is because yeah. you're seeing the same actresses play two different people yeah at different points in the film yeah um that obscure object of desire, of desire is which i've not seen Louise Bunuel film that uh, um, so a similar thing. let's see, I'm trying to think if there's other, uh, well, I mean, there are definitely other movies on my list. Uh, and I will go by perhaps, uh, Mulholland Drive made me very angry when I saw it, but I think aside <laughs> from that on my list, the film that made me the most angry, which is, I'm not sure if you've seen it last year at Marion Bod. I've never seen it. Oh boy. <laughs> now I saw that in, I saw that one in film school. Um, and Admittedly, if I saw if I had not seen it then and saw it now, I might still be angry at it. There's no <laughs> question. But that I mean, in, I feel like invariably these films are going to be inherently cerebral. Yeah, I guess so. They, I mean, they ask questions like, "What is what is identity? What is in the case of last year, Marion about what is memory and how is that? Right. How is our version of reality, whether it be memory of a place or memory of a relationship it's the the truth of that relationship is formed by our memories and so if what does that even mean and so you've got two hours of this film in which again it's it's there's there's really no narrative it's just these two characters constantly talking but not saying anything because they're trying to recall their relationship and what that meant and this and this meeting they had last year at Marionbot that may or may not have actually happened a little frustrating because <laughs> gu- guess guess uh I'll I'll give you two guesses do you think there is a definite answer given at the end I'm going to say no you're correct i, I gave you two it, answers I got it the first guess <laughs> exactly um but uh it occurs to me i'm mostly talking about films that kind of buck narrative conventions well that was the first thing i wanted to talk about okay but let's move into the second thing which is films that use non-narrative approaches mm-hmm. to tell narrative stories mm-hmm. i think increasingly this is something that michael bay does huh. uh, and I, i've said this before on the show and i'll make this point again i don't like michael bay's movies at all yeah um but i he's not a hack He's he's definitely an auteur of sorts. Yeah, he is, no, he's an auteur. No, he he absolutely is. I'll I, you know if I may, I'll even call him an artist. I just he just makes art that I don't like at all, even a little bit. Now let me ask you this: Would you go so far as to say that he makes bad art? I mean, he achieves what he wants to achieve. That's completely subjective. I okay. Guess. 
I don't know. It's not completely subjective. I yeah, mean, he does. Penny Marshall makes bad art. Okay. No, what I'm saying is I don't know that uh, that, that was mean. Um, Sexist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when it comes to Michael Bay, I don't think it's. I don't think I can say it's bad art. It's just not for me. Yeah. But I really feel like he is. There's something compelling him to make. To yeah. make these movies the way that he is. If he were just in it for the money, which even though in interviews he definitely comes across as someone who likes the fact that his movies make as much money as they do, but if he were just in it for the money, he'd be Brett Ratner. But he's not Brett Ratner, he's Michael Bay, and he does things that are very Michael Bay-ish and have nothing to do with the story at all and aren't his, even uh, coherent. Now, his talking about how much money his movies make i don't think that's a function of him being in it for the money i think he views that as just an extension of i'm giving people what they want he uses that as right, a vindication saying, less about like maybe, hey maybe I that's this. what he says but I, I i really do think there's something inspiring and compelling michael bay no because there really if he is, were yes. just giving the people what they want like i say he, he'd be brett ratner I mean, is is the idea of giving people what they want or giving people what perhaps they think they need? Like viewing viewing film in a, in a uh, Sullivan's Travels kind of way where, you know, there's a high unemployment rate. You know, it's kind of a crappy, you know, kind of a crappy time. People just want an escape and I'm going to give it to them. I mean, that could be a driving force behind somebody making films like Michael Bay. That could be... I'm not saying it is, but it could be the driving force that you're talking about. Well, to that to that extent, if you're going to broaden that definition that much, then that's any filmmaker's driving thing is to give someone what what the filmmaker thinks they want. Or or you know, if you're going to if you're going to say that a relief from the whatever the grind of daily life mm-hmm. is what they want, then that anything could fit that definition. Last year Marion Bod could fit that definition. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I'm saying is, I don't think that's. I don't think that's strong enough. Okay, fair enough. I'm saying that I think Michael Bay has a muse of some sort. Okay, and it drives him to make films that I don't like at all. But no, he's not. Uh, he's not a hack. Yeah, he's definitely an, an auteur. Like, how would you? Just out of curiosity, this is this is slightly off topic, but uh, how would you define a hack? Uh, as a di- a directing hack, I think someone who has. To keep it in this vein of discussion, who has no muse, who is making choices, directorial choices, uh, based on what has worked for the others who came before him, mm-hmm. and not based on anything within himself, or his own opinion, or emotion, or feeling about the piece, or about the art form, just making the choice that should be made based on the successes that have come before. It's like uh, almost like a, some sort of some sort of uh, computer making the film, except there's a desperation to hack this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you can see it. I mean, we're talking about hack f- filmmakers, but you know, a lot of a lot of times the word hack is is uh, applied to comedians. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think the reason comedians become hacks is because they want the laugh and they'll mm. do anything to get it, including doing what's easy and what has worked before without pushing anything or saying anything or telling a story or a joke that is part of their who they are so yeah it's basically like a desperate computer that's what a hack is and so actually in this i guess it's not as much of a tangent as i thought 
and because this can relate to what we're discussing, because one could say that a hack is somebody that an auteur or an artist um, is somebody who wants to bring something of, the, of themselves in some way, shape, or form. They have a muse, as you as you say, um, in any film that they make. Whereas a hack, and if that means they have to buck convention, then so be it. But a hack is somebody who clings to convention, not in an attempt to make it the best it can be, like the verdict. Um, right. it, it sounds Which like we're I, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The verdict is not. I mean, the, the term "conventional" has really bad connotations. It does. So I don't want to call the verdict a conventional film. It's just. Right. I mean, it's an exceptional film, actually. Yeah, it's it, not. It's not taking any risks, but there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Well, even that, I wouldn't that. necessarily say is true. It's not. It's not taking narrative risks. I guess. I guess so, yeah. I don't, I don't even know how to say it. That doesn't even sound yeah, right. There, I know what you mean. Yeah. In in filmmaking, <laughs> sir, in, in film appreciation circles, words like conventional and not taking risks because all of a sudden the concept of something being safe is terrible. Right. Uh, conventionalism yeah, being, is... Something being safe probably is terrible. That's what a hack is. I suppose... Well, but at the same time, like, somebody who's trying to, you know... You don't necessarily have to try and change the world all the time, but a hack is somebody who I think really uses the conventions as a crutch and and sees no reason to not even necessarily buck convention. Why would they ever want to do that? But not even try and work well within those conventions. As long as I hit this note, right? It's it, it's yeah. by the numbers, you know. Uh, I feel like that's what a hack is: is somebody who clings to convention. Because they're, you mentioned desperation. They're terrified to go beyond it, or to even experiment within the convention. Well, let's um, let's talk about filmmakers or films that have used non-narrative or experimental or innovative or risky forms okay. to serve the story. Okay. Um, and it's it's funny. Like initially, all my examples were somewhat recent, and then I realized I think the reason that is is because the filmmakers who took risks. Uh, these kind of risks, their styles ended up being adopted mm-hmm. and becoming almost conventional. John yeah. Luc Godard is a great example. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so much of uh, the way that commercials are edited, the way that music videos are, are uh, uh, you know, are edited, and the way that certain genres of film are now edited. Mm-hmm. Um come from what Jean-Luc Godard did. Even um even David Lean, you know. Uh, okay, yeah. You know, we look at Lawrence of Arabia now as just this classic film. Yeah. But there's some stuff about it that's really weird and meditative, you know, and almost well, meandering and to me the idea uh, Lawrence of Arabia is is a great example because just because it ha- it clearly has a big budget and it's an epic, and in many ways some would say that that is a very m- almost mainstream type of thing. It's it's an epic. There's action, so everyone would like it. But where it where it bucks convention is that at the core of the film is basically a mystery. We have no idea what drives Lawrence. Mm-hmm. He has no idea what what drives himself. He just does things, and it and we're just along for the ride. But when somebody yells, who are you? Of course, that is the, the core question of the film. Um, and it's uh, that to me, building an enti- a three-hour 
multi-million dollar epic uh-huh. around a rather one could venture to say a enigmatic but maybe even a vacuous character as far as motivation is concerned that's that's risky i think uh-huh. um but I, I yeah i agree but i'm talking about the way that those those elements are uh, uh are explored via the aesthetic mm-hmm. you know um yeah and again i i i just point to these sort of like this uh almost like heavy use of color like the, yeah. the way the way that the the nighttime scenes in Lawrence of Arabia almost the night almost sinks into the desert and yeah it gives it the for a film for all its you know horses running across the desert and explosions yeah. and stuff there are languid sequences in that in that film yeah very much so uh and that's the kind of thing that I'm that I'm talking about and a good a good example. Speaking of of the desert, um, I think a, a good example of what we're talking about. Um, Three Kings, uh-huh. uh, David O. Russell specifically. Uh, I forget if exactly how you would phrase it. He sort of bleached the uh, the colors so that not only would everything seem really washed out, but everything would just seem oppressively bright. Uh-huh. Um, now I did not see the film in the theater, uh, uh-huh. and I wish I had because uh, just. In the desert, there's no escape from that sun. Uh-huh. And the way that it, it uses something that is not certainly not normal and something that might actually be maybe not physically painful for the audience, but maybe even that, because it could hurt your eyes, I could see that, um, to enhance our the character's relatability or at least their situation. Something like that, I think, is a good example of what we're talking about. And that's a fairly conventional story. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's a great example. And also, he does things with the that are formerly experimental. Not experimental. That's not the they'd been done before. Mm-hmm. But um, just uh, you know, at the beginning of Three Kings, Mark Wahlberg shoots an Iraqi. Yes, and then mere minutes later, when Spike Jones is telling the story, we see it again in a completely ridiculous way, where the the guy's head pops off when he gets shot. Yeah. Um, yeah, that kind of and that's the kind of stuff that ends up getting yeah, just uh absorbed into the culture. I mean, that's like that's like a family guy joke now. Y- oh, you yeah. know. Um uh, others I want to talk about are um Lynn Ramsey, who I've I hear is finally making another film, a third film after Ratcatcher and oh. uh Morvern Collar. Uh Caller, Collar, I'm not sure. Um but like Ratcatcher has a part where a kid um, one of the kids in the movie ties his pet mouse to a balloon and mm-hmm. lets it go out the window. This is going to make him, it's, you know, he's going to fly. Mm-hmm. And then the movie leaves the story and all the characters behind and it follows the mouse on the balloon mm-hmm. as he goes up into the air and into space and then lands on the moon, uh, where there's all these other mice running around <laughs> the moon. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful sequence. Um, and it has it has nothing to do with the story, but it does illustrate something mm-hmm. about these kids who are kind of, uh, I guess, sort of trapped like mice in these like this yeah. estate housing or whatever they call it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't live over there. Projects, whatever. Cross the pond. <laughs> yeah, um, and that as the still being children and still being somewhat innocent. Mm-hmm their imaginations can set them free for a little bit 
Yeah. Uh, and that seems, I mean, that's a very trite thing. It's very trite when you say it out loud, and maybe that's why Lynn Ramsey felt she had to do yeah. this, weird, this weird diversion that's, that's beautiful and hilarious at the same time. Yeah, I never saw a rat catcher. I know that you you it's owned it for fantastic. I mean, almost the whole time that we lived together, and yet I never watched it. Um, excuse me. Um, and I feel like you know you mentioned sound earlier, and I I feel like uh, Three Kings made me think of this, and then it made and then Saving Private Ryan as well. Mm-hmm. For a long time, if you were going to show war, you would show it relatively objectively now of course if the camera was in was in the midst of the chaos then that instantly makes us feel like we're a part of it but sometimes i've never been in war but i've been in a car accident i've been in well several car accidents i've been in like mm-hmm. fights with my brother you need to learn how to drive i was not responsible for any of these by oh, the way okay. uh but uh but yeah any any kind of major and and even even uh like getting terrible news uh-huh. you are not totally there you feel kind of numb oh man what there's a great scene in an episode of buffy that's okay. exactly what you're talking about someone getting terrible news yeah and joss we i don't want to give anything away so i'll just speak very broadly joss Whedon directs the episode mm-hmm. and the person who's telling buffy the news uh the camera cuts off the side of their face and the top of their head like it's not it's completely yeah uh not a shot that you would normally see but it's it's because buffy's not taking this in objectively she's right there in front of the guy exactly and she's her mind is wandering she doesn't care what the guy looks like or if he's in frame yeah he uh, is he is less important than the news that he is bearing and right. thus his mouth is the only thing that's important right um but david that's Talk, that's appreciating television, which is nothing like appreciating film. Anyway, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> Not to this episode. Uh, but yeah, that's the thing. is Bad news or a traumatic event, putting, merely putting the camera in the midst of chaos, that does something in making us, putting us in the position of the characters. But I, one of the things that's great about... Uh, that that opening sequence in Saving Private Ryan uh, mm-hmm. that everybody loves and as well they should. It's uh, amazing filmmaking is is knowing when to have the objective chaos of what's going on and when to have. I mean, the sound pretty much cuts out or at least becomes dulled, yeah. and you hear a few things here and there, and it just does. It seems dreamy. It certainly doesn't seem like reality. Which I have again. I haven't been in war, but when I when I was in a a terrible car accident with my brother in which the, the car flipped. Uh, I only remember, I, I certainly wasn't there the whole time. I mm-hmm. remember flashes and I remember not being able to hear completely well. And afterwards not being able to, to piece thoughts together. There's a, there's a sequence in Philip, Philip Kaufman's, uh, the right stuff mm-hmm. when, um, you know, these test pilots who have been turned into astronauts or yeah. they're down in, uh, Houston. They're being sort of feted at this, gala mm-hmm. being feted at a gala absolutely you know what that's like um <laughs> <laughs> and there's like feather dancers and all this stuff and chuck yeager who got left behind didn't become right an astronaut he's still a test pilot uh they he cuts uh philip coffin cuts back and forth between this gala yeah. and um chuck yeager's flight as a test pilot where he ends yeah. up having to bail out yeah and so it's incredibly chaotic while he's in the cockpit yeah right and then 
he he bails out and he's falling through the air and the sound almost almost completely cuts out where you just yeah. hear almost a faint whistling and that's it yeah uh and um it seems you know physically it seems like if you're rushing falling through the air at 90 miles per hour or whatever yeah. it's going to be loud yes uh but that's not the emotion he wanted to get across exactly he wanted to get across this guy's isolation because he's been left behind yes and so he's a he might as well be stranded on the moon like these mice yeah and it's and it's interesting <laughs> pretty happy that. with that yes good for you <laughs> um i think the episode's over now um <laughs> but i yeah i think that's the these are and and i i have kind of an interesting I don't know. Maybe maybe this doesn't fit into what we're talking about. But um, so John Cassavetes is a director who was committed to realism, but at the same time, he made things very hyper real. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, he made characters that were that seemed very realistic, like people we would know. Certainly, in the way the characters were played, but in some of the things he gave the characters to do, specifically. Uh, what Cassavetes have you seen? I forget. I've seen Faces and Husbands. Okay. I'm not sure. I feel like I've seen... Because uh, I remember we watched Faces. The one, the one with Jim Rollins. A Woman Under the Influence? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's... in. Okay, I got <laughs> that's it. That's kind of what I um, thought. But yeah, I think that's the one I've seen. But it's... Uh, but just in Faces, I think it's very pronounced, the idea of just constant laughter. I mean, just this steady stream of laughter. To the point where not only... Are the uh, are the actors given notes to play that aren't totally and and admittedly there is kind of a generational thing. I mean, Faces was going to be called Dinosaurs for a while uh-huh. uh, because it was the idea of this was a generation of people that are not comfortable expressing their emotions, and so they will laugh in, a, in an almost cathartic way because they're not they certainly aren't going to let themselves cry, and so uh, so maybe it is a generational thing. But uh, either way, the characters are. So you're saying dinosaurs didn't know how to express emotion? I don't think so. Is that I mean, John except Cassavetes' assertion. I I assume so. Okay. Yeah, or rather that this is the old generation and uh, and our our generation is so going to be much better. So older dinosaurs couldn't express emotion, but the younger ones could. Exactly. Okay, like the Triassic. I don't know the difference. I was going to go Cretaceous <laughs> and Triassic, but I'm like, I don't know what order they go in. <laughs> right. I don't remember. Um, all I know is that uh, a lot of the dinosaurs from that were in Jurassic Park, it should have been called Cretaceous Park. That's the thing I remember. Okay. Um, but uh, So the Cretaceous is like the part that, like, that's the only part that everyone talks about, the Cretaceous. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that gets all the press. Exactly. <laughs> but it doesn't, Cretaceous Park doesn't sound, doesn't sound very catchy. I guess so. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so he gives the actors what seem like unrealistic notes to play, but after a while you kind of get used to it, and it does play up the constant awkwardness of these of this situation. Yeah. But I'm almost positive that he that when it comes time for people to laugh, he boosts the audio uh-huh. um, because when they're talking, it's very quiet, and then suddenly the laughter is just uh, almost explosive. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It, that's a that's a tough film to revisit. It's very uncomfortable. As his husband's. Yeah, all of his films are. I mean, he's. I mean, he has said that. Like, uh, I don't remember if I don't remember if he said this or somebody else described his fi- his films like this. But I, I I think it's the perfect description. I think I've probably said it before that 
that moment where you and your friends are someone makes a joke and it's funny and then you'll make it the, the same joke later and then you'll make it again and the very first time that you make it and people don't laugh quite as hard and and there's an unspoken realization that everyone has that this joke is no longer funny those are the moments that he tries to capture in his films <laughs> and i think that's you know what i mean just that kind of awkwardness where you suddenly realize that this thing that brought you joy doesn't bring you maybe quite as much joy the joke is not necessarily dead, but it's on its way. Right. And so, uh, so yeah, his films are not necessarily pleasant, and I think he makes them, I guess, hyper-real is the way to describe it. It's based in reality, but certain emotional aspects, whether it be through notes he's giving the performers or maybe through sound design, uh, he, he heightens certain things to make us feel what these characters are feeling inside rather than what they're expressing outside. Um, and I, I, I feel like that fits in. I, I, yeah. His films are not necessarily experimental, but the way he approaches these very realistic situations mm-hmm. is experimental, I think. And it, uh, a, a point that I didn't know going into this episode that I wanted to make, but I keep coming back to, is the way that uh, experimenting within the narrative form, mm-hmm. if it works, it will end up getting absorbed into the conventions and become a part of the convention. Yeah. And certainly cringe humor or awkwardness humor yeah. is now a very accepted thing and, it's all, and for most of the past decade has been the dominant form of American comedy. Odd that you mentioned humor, though, because nothing about faces is funny. No, that's true. But Seymour Cassell has some nice moments. but Laughing the whole time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I want to talk about... Um, I want to end by... or uh, to il- Illustrating my point... Um, in Olivier Isaias' Carlos, which is one of the mm. uh, better films of the past year, um, b- the film moves at a good clip for being five and a half hours long. Um, oh, my. But, you know, often, like, uh, you know, I- I'm trying to think of an example. Like, uh, Carlos will be at the top of the staircase, and then the next cut, he's at the bottom of the staircase. Yeah. And we know that in the space between the cuts, he walked down the stairs. It does what would have once been very disorienting jump cuts. Yeah. And um we're always becoming more sophisticated as viewers. Yeah. So things that seemed experimental or challenging mm-hmm. at one time we end up getting used to and they get absorbed. Which is you know, I mean these uh incredibly incoherent battle scenes that Michael Bay does. Yeah. You see them becoming more and more the norm because lots of people are seeing them. Yeah, to the point where they are the norm at this point, completely. And right, and there you go. They're they've stopped being challenging or different or experimental and become part of the convention. So people always have to keep reinventing. To the point now where a movie like Troy, which is not a good movie, but the the scene where uh, Achilles and Hector are just fighting one on one. That is more invigorating than the huge <laughs> armies fighting in the quick cutting because we've seen that so much that just a one-on-one fight in the way of, like, Spartacus or something is yeah. like, oh, now we're talking. You know, whereas yeah. I feel like 40, 50 years ago, it might have been the opposite. Yeah. There's a great fight in... Um, I keep mentioning films from this year because it's, you know, this past year because it's mm-hmm. the year and I've been catching up on a lot of them. But there's a great fight... Uh, fist fight in red between Bruce Willis and Carl Urban in Carl Urban's office. That's a great fight. And it's 
I got, I found myself like, yeah, hey, this is a great fight, and B, I understand exactly what's going on at every moment. I, yeah, like it's moving very quickly, but I still am completely aware of where everyone is, where each character is in relation to each other, and why, you know, this person hits this person here. I understand the reaction to that mm-hmm. comes from the previous shot. Um, uh, so yeah, it is it's now. It's invigorating to have a fight scene that makes sense. Last episode, you predicted I was going to bring up a certain film. I did not at the time. But I'm going to now because I want to end it uh, right. My thing on on this, and I, it didn't occur to me until you mentioned uh, the the quick cutting in uh, Carlos, which is the limey. Right. The limey has. I, I wrote a paper about uh, the editing in the limey uh, in school because it's so fascinating. There's there are for those that haven't seen it. If you're a Soderbergh fan, and even if you just if you're a movie fan, seek out the limey. I really love it. Uh, but one thing that happens is that. Uh, Throughout the film, it cuts to Terrence Stamp's character like sitting on a plane, but then and you're not really sure what that is. It doesn't give any context for it. But then uh, you cut back to an, uh, a discussion he's having with uh, Leslie Ann Warren, and it's one conversation, but it's in three different locations. Uh-huh. And so it'll cut to her standing outside on a bridge, and he's there with her, and so she'll say something. And then it will cut to him, to the two of them in her apartment for his reply. Yeah. And you're like, that's very strange. Although somehow it doesn't seem that strange because the conversation is linear, but the editing is absolutely not. And then it's revealed. And it's tied together with the him on the plane thing. Yes. That's sort of like the anchor. Uh, yes, but it do- but even within that discussion, it doesn't cut to him on the plane very often. It probably only cuts to him on the plane, I'd say, maybe five times throughout the whole film. And then it puts the capper on the end where it shows him on the plane, and he has a discussion with the, the flight yeah. attendant and uh, the person sitting next to him. And you realize that the whole film has, hit, has been him thinking back on his trip right. to Los Angeles, and he doesn't remember, and he remembers that over the course of his evening with Leslie Ann Warren... He, they went to these places, and this is the basic conversation they had. Right. So it incorporates all of that together, and it, and it's just such an amazing, an amazing representative of how memory works. Um, not to go, necessarily go back to that, but in that case, like the editing is not necessarily it's not jarring, or at least it wasn't for me. So you're saying you like the limey almost as much as you like last year at Marion Bed? I think I like the limey more. Oh. I, but uh, but I do I have a great deal of respect for last year at Marion right. Bad, um, whereas at the time I was like, "What the hell are you doing to me, <laughs> Frenchman?" So uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, this uh, David, we've been going for a while, so I think we'll we'll end it here. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a second episode tonight to catch up because we didn't do one the week of Thanksgiving. I think that's correct. And um, I like the number of episodes to be the number of weeks we're doing the show. Indeed, we're. we're we're sneaking up on 200 here. Very exciting. Uh, very soon will be a 200, and I wanted our 200 episode to be the 200th week. Yes. Not a, not a week behind. So, uh, yeah, we're doing two. So, um, you can uh, find us at BellShowPretension.com or on iTunes. You can if you actually want people to find us at these places, <laughs> you need to say them. I'm just saying, it's going to be in the next episode. Aren't you too. mumbly enough? Yeah, so but the next episode goes up David in a few at David at Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com, BattleshipPretension.com. Twitter.com slash the pretension, twitter.com slash more lessons, more than one lesson.com, previously on show.com. There you go. Done. Now, what do those mean? More than one lesson.com. What is that? I don't know what that is. It's Tyler's movie pod, movie discussion and review podcast. Mm-hmm. Previous down, what's that? 
That's a television review podcast mm-hmm. and news. Television news and review. Okay. Fair enough. Is that review like R-E-V-U-E? Yeah, we come out, we sing some songs about okay. the week in television. <laughs> now that's, a sh- that's a podcast worth listening to. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.